Thank you, Brian, for resurrecting with us this morning. All right. All right, here's how we're going to start today. There's going to be a verse of scripture that comes up on the screen. I'd like us to stand up and read that aloud together. You ready? Come from Galatians 5.1. Ready? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. One more time. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The title of the message today is called For Freedom. Say that with me. For Freedom. We're going to discover a couple things this morning. One is that God is a big fan of freedom and that freedom is its own reward. Freedom is its own reward. It, is, it couldn't be plainer than what you see there. It is for freedoms, for the sake of freedom, that Christ has set you free, set us free. All right, now most of the ground that we have covered in this series, Our Ancient Future, uh, has been tying biblical happenings to what uh, we face today, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, how the very beginning of things in the Word is directly tied to the very, very end, and there's a greater level of connectivity than we ever even realized. Uh, we've seen that thus far. Today, we're going to shuffle our historical steps a little to the side uh, for this day. Next week, we'll hit the first century pretty hard, but not this week. Uh, we're going to jump off at the 15th century. The 15th century. Anybody tell me what tomorrow is? It's, yeah, it's Monday. <laughs> Einstein. <laughs> it's Mon what is tomorrow? Columbus day. Columbus day. Tomorrow is Columbus Day. There has been quite a devolution in how society views Christopher Columbus. You know this as well as I do. Um, when I was a kid, he was a hero. He was a hero. Uh, he was a fearless explorer who took on the daunting Atlantic Ocean, insisting that he would not sail off the edge of the earth. And as we learned in school, those of you that are, you know, mature as I am, we, we learned in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We all learned that uh, together. He was seen as the discoverer of America and was etched forever in American history, and rightly so, rightly so. Uh, but late in the 20th century, uh, however, it became fashionable to vilify Christopher Columbus as the one who basically introduced all evil into this land in which we live. What they said was this pure land of native perfection in what has uh, become known as North America. That he just kind of, you know, introduced all evil. So, is Columbus good or is he bad? It's tempting to say that the truth is somewhere in between. That he was a good guy who unknowingly introduced disease and some bad things into the native population here. But that's not true either. Uh, the truth is actually much more complex. Christopher Columbus was way better than good. He was way better than good. He was incredible in many, many ways. Having said that, Columbus was or did worse than bad. Regret haunted his soul for some of the things that he did. So let's start with the good. I always like starting with the good. Um, Christopher Columbus was an expert navigator. He was a skilled map maker. He was a visionary, and he was a spirit-filled Christian. Not everybody knows that. As a young man, Columbus devoured the Bible. He even wrote a Bible commentary. Columbus did. It was basically a compilation of all the teachings and, uh, and prophecies of the Bible on the subject of the earth and distant lands and population movements and undiscovered tribes. It's brilliant writing. 
So when Columbus sought for what is today's equivalent of about a half a million dollars to fund his explorations, uh, he was rejected. He was rejected by King John of Portugal and then by Henry VII of England and then by Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And this was devastating to him. It was devastating because he really believed that the plan had been given to him by divine revelation from God himself. Here's what he wrote in his journal. These are beautiful words. They'll be on the, on the uh, TVs there. He said, it was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. It goes on and says, all who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. He said, there was no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous illumination from the Holy Scriptures. Now he keeps going, this is brilliant. Listen, these are great words. No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior. If it is just and if the intention is purely for his holy service, the fact that the gospel should still be preached to so many lands in such a short time, this is what convinces me. I mean, amazing statements from an amazingly courageous man. Now, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella finally granted Columbus the funding for his explorations that he was seeking. And so he set sail in 1492 and landed in what he thought was the East Indies. That's how they referred to it at the time. It's what we now know as Indonesia or possibly the Philippine archipelago. Unknowingly, unknowingly, he discovered America. Didn't even realize what was happening. Now, not a ton of people know that Columbus made several uh, ensuing trips back to the New World in the years that, that followed. Having begun with this purpose in his heart of advancing the kingdom of God and spreading the good news of Jesus, his later years were consumed with really much baser desires. He began to be driven by a lust for riches and, and the need to be recognized and honored for his discovery. This was just driving a driving force inside him. He wanted to be recognized. And this quest went on for quite a while. And then in 1502, on his fourth and his final voyage to the New World, Columbus sailed southward down the coast of Central America and finally found the gold with which he had become so intoxicated. And they sailed inland by a river. And there he sent in multiple parties to gather treasure and water and some more supplies. And he was left virtually alone on the ship. But from the ship he heard Shouts, and then screaming, and then finally silence. And that evening, much later, as the tide was going out, Columbus began to see the bodies of his men floating down the river, and he was undone. He was undone. It all began flashing in front of him, how he'd started with such noble intentions. And now here he was, driven by this lust for gold and for treasure and sending men into a slaughter so that he could become richer. He said in his journal that he felt rebuked by the Lord for his selfishness and his foolishness. And he wept and he wept and he wept with regret. Well, the, the few men that remained with him, eventually they all made it back to Spain, albeit through sickness and some trials and some storms and some real perilous setbacks. And he was never, Columbus was never able to totally shake this need to be honored for his discovery. He just couldn't shake it. And that honor and that recognition did not come easily, and it didn't come in his lifetime. He died soon after on what the Catholics call Ascension Day 
1506. That's when he died. Now, in the centuries that followed, um, early America began to take shape. Uh, through the settlements at Jamestown and Plymouth and some of the others that lots of us know about, the Europeans came in waves increasingly, and then they came here from all over the world. And it represented, for most, a new land of opportunity, a new land of freedom. And one huge realm of, the, of freedom is this issue of religious freedom, religious freedom. It was one of the central motivations for people to travel across the, the ocean to this new world in order to start over. Freedom of faith, because faith is a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, I think that we would all agree that faith needs to be anchored in truth or else it's on shaky ground. Truth matters. So in the time that remains in this message, I'm going to address two words in detail, and they are truth and freedom. Say those two words with me. Truth and freedom. All right. I was talking to one of our Life Church members a while back, and she was sharing with me a conversation that she had with one of her friends. And this friend went to a different church, different denomination, and this friend told her that because she was not a part of his denomination, that she was going to hell. Well, that's helpful. That's nice. Maybe, just maybe, that's not the best opener for a discussion about faith. You know, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven who discover that smugness is not one of the fruits of the Spirit. So I want to make a few things, a few important things, clear in this message today. I can't cover it all, but I want to make a few things really, really clear. And undoubtedly, undoubtedly in the room today, there will be some feathers that get ruffled and some panties that get wadded, and I'm sorry for that. Sorry. First issue is truth. Truth. There are some non-negotiables about belief and about truth. It does matter what you believe. It does matter. It does matter the path that you choose for your life. Nobody's perfect, but we've got to realize this. All roads do not lead to heaven. And when someone tells you that it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere, don't buy what they're selling. You know, Jesus said some really, really provocative words in John 14, verse 6. He said these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Big words. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is offensive to lots of people, especially Americans who feel like options and preferences are like guaranteed to them through the Constitution or something like that. Being narrow-minded in our day, being narrow-minded or closed-minded is almost seen as being worse than a murderer today. And I have this to say about that. If you think about some of the words that are used in these kinds of discussions, one of the most common being this phrase, open-minded. Say that with me, open-minded. Often the person with spiritual convictions is seen as being closed-minded, and those without are seen as open-minded. What's interesting to me, what's interesting to me, is at the very center of the Christian faith is the assumption that this life is not all there is, that there's more to life than the material, that existence is not limited to what you can see, feel, taste, hear, touch. 
one of the very central assertions of Christianity is that there is more. There's more. And those who oppose this say that, no, this is all there is, that only what we can measure and observe, see, feel, touch, that's real. And nothing else, there is nothing else. Which perspective is really closed-minded? Which one is really open-minded? But you can see how this open-minded, closed-minded thing gets all twisted up and backwards in our day. A lot of people feel like God is very narrow and he's very cold because he's only provided one way for us to get to heaven. But let me ask you a question. Anybody here ever have appendicitis? Anybody in the room ever appendicitis? Okay, all right. Now, um, the only way to get relief and to save your life is to have your appendix removed. And you might say to the doctor, is there anything I can do to avoid having surgery? What would the doctor say? Well, not if you want to live. <laughs> not if you want to live. And that's a really, really narrow answer. But no one would think he's cold and uncaring because he gave you one, only one option. He gave you the option. He gave you the way to be rescued from your predicament. Let's look at spiritual things this way for just a moment. Stay with me. Suppose with me for just a moment. Suppose that once upon a time, a good and loving and caring God created people in his own image. And suppose that he gave all those people that he created free will so they could make their own choices. And then suppose that he set them up in a perfect environment with plenty of food and sunshine and interesting things to do. And suppose he gave them just one restriction and let them know that if they violated that one single restriction, that they would lose the life, the gift of life that he had just given them. Well, suppose they violated that one restriction just because they felt like it. So they violate that one restriction that they'd been given. And suppose that God, instead of taking their lives for that violation, instead God makes provision for them and forgives them. Now suppose those people's descendants repeated that pattern over and over and over again. Then suppose that God bestows special gifts upon one particular nation so they could be an example to the world, that they could know God deeply. They could help all the other people in the world break this kind of destructive pattern. Well, suppose that one chosen nation rebelled as well. And then suppose, time after time after time, God forgave this nation. He delivers them from the messes that they keep getting themselves into. And then God sends special messengers to this nation of people. Suppose they killed the messengers. Then suppose the people all, in a widespread way, just turned their back on God. They invent other gods, other religions, worship idols that they carve out of stone or out of wood or they find out in the world instead of following the God that actually created them. And then suppose, in an ultimate act of redemption, God himself comes down to them in human form, not to condemn them, but to redeem them. And then suppose those people, instead of welcoming this God into their environment, they rejected and tortured and killed him. And then suppose that God then accepts the death of his very own son as payment for the sins of the very people who put him to death. God receives them. 
And then suppose God offers his son's murderers complete forgiveness and transcendent peace and eternal life as a free gift. And then suppose God says, I only want one thing from you in return, just one thing, that you honor my son who gave his life for you. God did all that. Would you be willing to say, God, you're not being fair. You're not being fair. You haven't done enough. I want other options. The shocking thing is not that there's just one way. The shocking thing is that there's any way at all. Truth matters. Truth matters. And faith needs to be anchored in truth or else it's on shaky ground. It's on shifting sands. Jesus made it really, really, really clear when he said those words in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because the good news on the end of that, all are welcome. All are welcome. Man, woman, Jew, Gentile, free or not, colored or not, red, black, yellow, white, doesn't matter. All are welcome with Jesus without exception. It's an engraved invitation to connect with God, be cleansed, forgiven, made new, new life, eternal life, friendship with God throughout your days on this earth. It's an engraved invitation that God gives to all people everywhere without favoritism. So truth is the first word that we're addressing in this message today. In America, we're free to worship as we choose. We have freedom of religion. But it matters what we choose. It matters. And we're accountable. We have freedom. But we're accountable for the choices that we make regarding that. Here's the second word. Second word is freedom. Freedom. Which brings us to the million-dollar question. Is the United States a free country or is it a Christian country? It's a simple answer. I'm going to take a few minutes to answer it, but it's this. We are a free nation that was founded by leaders who were largely, but not exclusively, Christians. The Constitution that governs us lays out the foundation for free citizens, not ways to legislate Christianity. There's a good reason for that, and here it is. Can't be done. It cannot be done. In my understanding of God's word, the legislation of God's word upon a nation is not something that God even desires. It misses the point. And doing so would set up a structure of missing the point. Listen, friends, I spent 10 years in the presence of a group of people that I would call Americhristians. Say that with me, Americhristians. They taught the Americhristian way which really is closer to a cult than it is real Christianity. In it, in this system, revolutionary war era America was so romanticized and distorted, it blended Christianity and patriotism to a degree that almost put halos on the Minutemen and angel wings on the founding fathers. I'm a patriot. I am a patriot. I have tremendous respect and appreciation for our founding fathers and the price that they paid for our freedom. I am. I've defended them when folks these days attack them, which is kind of in vogue to do these days. 
But these are remarkable men and women. I believe they are remarkable men, not perfect men and women, remarkable men and women who paved the way for the America that we now enjoy. Um, this is my country, and I'm a patriot. But American and Christian are not synonymous, not even close, not even close. Jesus said these words, don't ever forget them. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. The U.S. Constitution, this is where I'm start tiptoeing. The U.S. Constitution is a secular document. While it references God and the Creator, it comes in purposefully nonspecific terms. It contains no mention of Christianity or Jesus Christ. In fact, the Constitution only refers twice to religion in the First Amendment in which it bars any respecting of the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then in Article 6, where it prohibits religious tests for leaders, for public office. Listen, the founding fathers didn't create a secular government because they disliked religion or disliked Christianity. Far from it. Many of them were believers themselves. Yet they were well aware of the dangers of this church-state union deal. They had studied it, even seen it firsthand, the difficulties that church-state partnerships had spawned in Europe. They saw the problems. And beyond that, during the American colonial period, these alliances between religion and government produced oppression and tyranny on our very own soil, right here in the, in the land that we live in. Many colonies, for example, they had provisions limiting public office to only, only Trinitarian Protestants, and there were other laws in place designed to prop up the religious leanings of the politically powerful. Some colonies had officially established churches, and they taxed all the citizens to, to support them, whether they wanted to give or not. Dissenters faced imprisonment, torture, even death. How is that different from the religious oppression that they left behind in Europe? How's it different? What they wanted was freedom. What the people wanted and thought they were getting in for was freedom. But still, for the last 230 years or so, there have been regular attempts to write in laws that define America as a Christian nation. And while the notion is admirable, and I believe it's well intended, it misses the point in so many ways it's difficult to name them all. Just a few ways in which it misses the point. First, Christianity cannot be legislated. It can't be. I mean, Jesus himself brought spirituality from outward laws to the inward heart. If you're not sure about that, just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about that. Okay, even if it could be legislated, whose version of Christianity gets enforced? I mean, plenty of our founding fathers were Freemasons them to create laws according to what they believed? So which theological strain would get the top spot? And do you think there might be some jockeying for position when it comes to that? That kind of power? What about penalties for not being a Christian? Fines? Prison? What about tithing and giving? Does it just become an involuntary tax? So if we're going to use the Bible as civic law and Israel as an example, well, they had not just one tithe, but they had several. Is that what you want? <laughs> what about evangelism? If you don't speak about your faith to others, what happens? Are you penalized, punished, fined? 
it all gets a little woogity. It's a good word. It all gets a little woogity when you blend religion and government. It has not gone well in the past. Now, it is true that some of our country's founders fought for and believed that the government should endorse Christianity, but that viewpoint soon became a losing proposition. Um, in Virginia, Patrick Henry was a great man. He argued in favor of tax support for Christian churches, but he and his allies were in the minority, and they lost that battle. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and some of their allies, along with the state's religious groups, ended Virginia's established church, and they helped passed this Statute for Religious Liberty, which was a 1786 law that guaranteed freedom for everybody. Guaranteed it. Um, Madison and Jefferson's viewpoint also won the day uh, when the Constitution and then later the Bill of Rights were written. Had an officially Christian nation been the goal of the Founding Fathers, you would see it in the Constitution. It is not there. It's not there. Instead, our nation's governing document ensures religious freedom for everybody, for everybody. Now, there were some pastors back then who were furious about this. They favored the church-state union, and they were outraged, and they preached sermons that the U.S. would not be a successful nation because the Constitution was not giving special preferred status to Christianity. But lots of others welcomed this structure of freedom, and they praised the Constitution and the First Amendment as protectors of true liberty. President George Washington, President Washington, in a famous 1790 letter to a Jewish congregation in Rhode Island, celebrated the fact that the, the Jewish people had full freedom of worship in America. And he said these words, all possess alike liberty of conscience and the immunities of citizenship. He's saying, you're free, you're free to worship as you choose. What we should fight for as a nation is freedom and to keep religious freedom. And while the notion, I get it, the notion of being a Christian nation seems appealing on the surface, it can and would go south in a New York minute. Around the globe, people still dwell under oppressive regimes where religion and government are commingled. And this is one reason, one reason, that countless people are lining up to get into the United States. And the only people lining up to get out are the Hollywood types who never, ever have the guts to actually do it. <laughs> well, I don't love all the decisions of the US Supreme Court. Here's one statement that can bring a sigh of relief. Said this, this is Justice John Paul Stevens. When the underlying principle has been examined in the crucible of litigation, the court has unambiguously concluded that the individual freedom of conscience protected by the First Amendment embraces the right to select any religious faith or none at all. It's freedom. So, a citizen of the United States who believes in the great commandment and the great commission that's found in God's word ought to be the biggest fan of a religiously free nation because it's in a free nation that we're guaranteed to be able to exercise those calls to faithfulness and obedience. We can do it freely and joyfully and we should and we should thank God for it. We should thank God for it. Let's end, let's end where we began.
with these words from Galatians 5.1. Say them with me. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. One more time. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, we do see your wisdom and that freedom is its own reward. You want us to be free to choose you. So there can be a true step, an act of love to say, Lord, I choose you. I choose to love you and embrace who you are and what you've done for me. And I might devote myself to you by choice. Thank you, Lord, for free will that you gave humanity. Thank you for freedom of worship that's been given to us by our own nation. That we have the freedom to choose you and not be jailed for it. So, Lord, we just want to express our gratitude to you for being able to live in a, in a great nation. Not perfect, but great. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to appreciate the blessings of freedom. Help us to choose well. Help us to focus our minds on you and the privilege that we have of growing and knowing you at deeper and deeper levels. We love you and we honor you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.